Good afternoon. I'm Roy Moore, and this is What Did It Take? This afternoon, we have Charles Rawls, retired chief of the Broward County School Police. A little background on, on Charles. He's actually my uncle, and throughout my life, he's been a great mentor, a great example, and he was my introduction to leadership at a very, very young age. Although at the time, I didn't understand and know what he was teaching me, what he was showing me. But um, today, as I reminisce and think back on the hard lessons he taught me, oh well, at least I thought they were hard at the time. It all makes sense now. And now he's a retired police chief and I'm in the military. And so now we can actually speak a common language now. So, uh, Uncle Charles, you on here? Yes, yeah. I am. Okay. How you doing? I'm doing well, Roy. Yeah. Uncle Charles, I thank you. I thank you for being on here. I thank you for giving me the time and uh, being on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, so let's dive right in. When it comes to being um, a police officer, what um, what was your inspiration to make you become a police officer? Well, as a teenager, I had a negative run-in with the law enforcement officer. We, myself and a few buddies, had gone up to the store to get a cold drink. And the officer rolled up on us and he had a very negative attitude and he questioned us and he in fact roughed up one of my friends who didn't respond in, in what the officer said was a respectful way and that upset me. I went home and I talked with my father and my father reminded me of the lessons he had taught me about cops. Uh, how to interact with them to survive, to survive. And so he said, son, remember, I taught you, if you see a problem, fix it. I don't know how. I don't know how you're going to figure that out. But in life, when you run into problems, fix them. So... That was just before I was going off to college. When I went off to college, my initial major was computer science. And I had begun going down that path. But I started hearing about all these shootings and all these arrest of my friends who didn't make it out the neighborhood, who didn't get out. And that made me change my major to criminology. All right. And so once you change your major to criminology, and obviously you graduated uh, from Florida State, right? Yes. And that's where you met Auntie Bunny at too, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. 
All right, so now you, you graduated, you had your degree, and now you fresh out of college, this young man on his new, a, a new path to, to try and make the world a little bit, a little bit better. Um, obviously, you're from Jacksonville, but you ended up in Riviera Beach. Um, how that, how that happened, and what happened when you did get to Riviera Beach? Well. I fell in love with your aunt and my plans to make a difference in the world didn't change. It's just where I was going to make that difference. And I initially became a probation and parole officer. Um, which I really didn't like because I didn't see any tangible results from that. I didn't see any growth. I didn't see myself in a way that was positively impacting the, the community. So shortly thereafter, I joined the Riviera Beach Police Department And that's and we'll, how that came about. So when, when you joined the department, so now you now you're um actual police officer. Um I remember growing up a a few times in the summertime. We um we spent summers with you all. And at that point in time I don't know exactly how long you had been on the force, but I know by that time you were working homicide. And to, I don't, I'm not 100% um, accurate on the, the police rank structure, but um, a homicide detective is uh, a supreme senior individual. So would you, so from the time you got into the police department to you became a detective, what, what was that, what was that time like with you dealing, with you dealing with, um, your peers in the police department and dealing with the community. Because the reason I ask is because I remember when I spoke to you once, um, we were down at Syracuse, we were in that school, and, and you were telling me, you said uh, to be to be a um, to be a great cop, it's almost a catch twenty two. It's down if you do and down if you don't, because you do the right thing. Uh, People in the department may dislike you, or people in the community don't understand why you're doing so. They hate you, and so you, it's like this balancing act. So, when you got into the department and um, you began to, to progress up the ranks, uh, what was that like? It was uh, it was a struggle, but I held to my values very closely. I remember one time I got called to the Imperial Shopping Center to back up uh, a racist cop. I'm just calling it what it was. And these guys had been out working construction all day and they had went into the store and they got themselves a beer and this, this cop just goes up to him and take a beer and pour it out 
and the beer splashing on this man's feet. Right then, I knew we were going to have to fight because he attacked this man's character. He, he, he It was awful. And the riot was on. It ended up to be a big riot. Well, I went in to the station, spoke to that officer very firmly about what I expect when I'm backing him up or whenever we're together. You don't do anything like that. I wrote him up. Uh, that didn't go over well with a lot of the officers, but I didn't care. Uh, the community didn't know what my actions were because it wasn't appropriate for me to speak out to him at that point. So there were several incidents where I held to my values and, and just did what was right. And so did that, how did that, um, was your values? Well, you know, I, I won't even say, I, I wasn't even discrediting them, even though I don't know them. I wouldn't discredit them and say they didn't have values. But the way you phrased it, and I'm glad you phrased it that way. You said, you didn't, because you, you never accused a man of not having values. You simply said you held on to yours. And you and I both know when you go into certain environments or you, you join certain organizations that, that, that have a certain type of culture, you're... Your integrity, your morals and values will come into question in in the sense of being jeopardized. Either you're gonna you're gonna maintain them and hold on to them, just as you said, or to to get along, you're gonna play along. Meaning, well, I'll while I'm here, I'll compromise my values, I'll compromise my integrity, I compromise my ethics. So as you being the the stand-up type of guy that held on to your morals and ethics and values, um, are we we've already recognized and identified that it was tough for you in the station. How did that affect your promotion and uh, your acceleration through the ranks? Actually, it helped me because superiors were were looking for officers that weren't gonna make it bad for the department. In fact, I got promoted to detective in 13 months. I kind of broke a record. Uh, one of the things that I did those first 13 months, that first year, I took every class, every course, every training that they offered uh and my other new cops was asking me man what are you doing man i get off i go home well i say well you do that i i'm just trying to learn more about this job and i volunteered to do crime scene uh i learned crime i became a certified crime scene investigator uh fingerprint investigator, I mean, fingerprint examiner was the title. 
Um, so when the promotion time came up, everybody in the department, including me, knew that this officer, Pinkman, uh, was going to get the job. But I put my resume in, I put my paper in for the job. And I went in there and I felt that I did very good in the interview. But when I left, you know, I was I was kind of sad, kind of dejected because I knew the the culture of the department and how I had been perceived. And Sergeant Long, white guy, asked me, he was over crime scene, so he and I were pretty close. He said, what's the matter, man? I said, I went in there and I put my best foot forward and I think I deserve this job, but we all know that it's going to Pinkman. And that was all uh, he said, and that was all I responded. When I got home, I got a call from the captain. He was also a white guy. And the captain said, uh, Officer Rawls, I, I, I hear that you think that the job was all was all going to be Officer Pinkman's. And you see, I got to be honest, it was. Pinkman was the one that we had in mind to promote. But when you came in there and showed us what you've been doing, it impressed us. And Monday morning, I want you to come in in plain clothes, detective. Uh, you got the promotion. So me holding firm to my integrity and to who I am in that case turned out to be beneficial to me, even though I was expecting differently. Now, in that same sense, um, so now everyone knows that um, you are you are a very ethical police officer. You're, you're being promoted. You're being recognized by the by the commanders, things of that nature, and you've earned a um, a promotion in record breaking time. Where during during this period, did you have any concerns or? Uh, about, uh, how can I say this? Well, you know what I just said. Did you did you at any time feel as if that you were possibly your life's possibly in danger from your other cops, or or um, fear that um, due to retaliation they may put you in a situation where um, you can be you can be murdered or anything like that, or be or bring harm to you or anything like that. Uh, I actually felt that backup was a little slow. Uh, when they got there, they were 
hands off if I was physically involved with a suspect. Uh, they were slow to engage. Uh, and, and I knew it was because of my reputation. And they, they justified it is that, well, if I touch this guy, Ross is just gonna report me. That, that was how they would justify it. But I survived and I used to wear my vest in the station as well as outside. You know, and some of the, the guys, this is when I became a detective, some of the guys used to joke with me, Rose, why you got your vest on in the station? I say, because it's just as dangerous in here as it is out there. You know, and they thought that was funny, but I meant it. So, so now knowing that and going up against that adversity in the police station, how were things outside of the police station with the community? Because, you know, with uh, increased increase, uh, rank, things of that nature, your responsibility, but also your influence increased as well. So how were things, how, how were you managing things with the community? Well, that was tricky because when we respond, it's usually a person's worst day because I went straight to homicide. I skipped crime person, uh, burglar task force. I skipped all that. They put me right in the homicide. And uh, the community started respecting me. And appreciating the effort that I would put into the job. I would stay longer. I would make sure that they're taken care of and make sure that they know that we care and that we're doing everything that we could. And I responded to them every day and let them know what was going on with the case. And I cleared 87% of my homicides with convictions. And that was a pretty high percentage. I had a few that I didn't solve, two of which I know who did it, but a lot of detectives around the country would mess with the evidence in order to get an indictment. I, I rather, I rather never, I rather let a criminal walk the streets than take the chance of putting an innocent man in jail. And that's tough because that criminal can go on to hurt somebody else. But 
I just don't believe in taking the chance of putting an innocent man in jail. And if I don't have the evidence to secure an indictment, I'm not going to create it. Yeah, what you know, what you know, and what you can prove is two different things. You can you can be in your feelings all day, but when it comes to the the legality of things, it's like uh, what what are we actually looking at here? Oh, that's um, yeah, and that's that that one thing right there is something uh, again throughout the country that um, the communities of people people of color that's something that we face very often, and I'm sure obviously you you are more aware of it than than I am, but um, and a lot of individuals uh, being um. A police officer, retired or otherwise, probably won't really admit to what you just said, which is uh, eye-opening. It's the Wait, truth. So, so now, why why are you why are you on homicide? Um, what 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 occurred? Because I because I because I assume something happened. Why are you on homicide? that pushed you into being a school police. What, what occurred while you were on homicide that made you want to be a uh, going to the schools? Well, my thing was dealing with the kids and, and I had a few incidents that that just made me sick because I couldn't do a thing. I was reacting, I was after the fact. I couldn't do much before, but there was one situation where it was a kid named Kenny G. I won't say his last name, but he was a decent kid, had decent grades and he was sitting on the corner and it's a, it's a drug dealing spot. And I would stop and talk to Kenny. You know, he would try to be all bad around his buddies or whatever, but I would talk to him about, hey man, this not you. This corner is, is a hot corner. You know, bad things happen out here, man. I need you to think about it. Um, he blew me off, he cursed me out couple times, but I kept going back to him. I kept going back to him until one time I said, you know what? I'm going to go talk to your mama. I went, talked to his mother, and she cursed me out, saying I was harassing her son. Leave her son alone. I said, ma'am, I'm trying to save your son because sitting on that corner, sitting where he at, he's going to run into some trouble. Well, about two weeks after that conversation, he was sitting on the crate that he always sit on and the guy standing around and some guys from West Palm rolled through and started shooting. Kenny bent to get up off the stool and he caught a nine millimeter in the top of the head. And that, 
that kind of broke my spirit. And I decided, what can I do in law enforcement that will help me get to these kids before they get out here in the street? And school police was sitting there, and I, I said, I think that that might be my path, even though it's a pay cut. I just feel that it's the path for me to help the community and to help these young people out. Okay. Once you so now so now you go from homicide. Now you go into school police, and uh, in the in the introduction, um, you're you you end up retiring as chief. Uh, throughout that time, while you were in the school system. What uh, systems did you create for yourself to uh, maintain your resilience, to keep pushing? Because I'm pretty sure, just as on the street, uh, in the schools, there are some students that you couldn't reach. And, and I imagine you lost students in the school as well. So what? Uh, how did you maintain your resistance? Your, not, not your resistance, I apologize. Your resilience. How did you keep going? Well, the volume, the number of students that I had a positive impact on, I felt was great because the kids responded to me, not as a cop, but as somebody that cared about them. To this day, those students reach out to me. They reach out on Facebook. They'll come by my house. they have nothing but great memories with me because I treated them right. I treated them with respect. And they learned that Rawls meant business. We could be laughing, joking one minute, but the next minute, if you cross the line, you're getting put on your neck. Uh, And... I had to have a tough background and the kids had to know that, but I also had to have some compassion. In fact, it got to the point where new kids would come into campus and they'll see me as that, as Joe Cop. And I could go to some cats on campus and say, hey man, talk to this boy. Cause he, he going in the wrong direction. He gonna get the business. And they would talk to him. And they would tell him I was a good guy. And they just need to be straight with me. And things were pretty good at my schools with me. Yes, I did lose some. Some didn't listen. But most did. A lot of kids ended up in the military. A lot of kids ended up going to college because I stressed having some kind of base of operations for yourself that'll give you a platform or, or a way to move up, take care of yourself, and be able to take care of your family, and you don't get stuck 
in the neighborhood. You don't get stuck doing nothing and spinning your wheels right here in Riviera Beach or West Palm Beach. I kept myself up by knowing that I was making a difference with some of these kids. I could see it. I could see the kids changing. The kids' parents tell me that the kid come home and talk about me all the time. Um, and it was a great experience. I started coaching football. That gave me even more <laughs> street cred, if you want to say. That gave me uh, a lot of credit with the kids, e e even the so-called tough guys, the football players or whatever. So listen, listen to you talk about um, how you were able to cultivate and galvanize the children. Those are um, those are those those leadership qualities that I spoke about earlier, and it's and a lot of people when you talk about leadership, they they think it's a, it's some kind of mess, uh, mystical or a thing that you can conjure up, but it's not. It's, it's simply a um, characteristics and principles that an individual live by in order to add value to others. And once you've been doing it for a while, just as you have, it, it's something you do in second nature. So when you travel, so now that's, uh, I can understand that's what you were doing to um, maintain your resilience on the job with the interacting with the people, interacting with the, the community, the things of that nature. Um, what did you do to decompress? Because you, you have to wash yourself mentally before you come home. What were, what were those things you were doing? I would do active meditation. On my way home, I had to mentally change out of my uniform. I had to change out of being the cop to becoming the daddy, being the husband, and not take that rough day I had home with me. And I had some really bad days in in the schools and I'm still dealing with a couple of them uh, with psychologists and talking to people that did the job was also another way that I decompressed over this time between the police department and um, the school police what are three things that you wish you knew from the beginning that are what that three things that you wish you knew or either three things you wish you knew or the three greatest lessons. Let, yeah, let's go with that. 
What are the three greatest lessons that you, that you've learned over your service? Well, well, I've learned that you have to be like a chameleon. You you have to be both a tough guy and a guy that'll cry with you as a student. I learned that continuing education is, is crucial because the more you learn, the better you are personally. And I guess the last one would be to get some personal affirmations that were going to help me along the way. And I found a couple, you know, and one that I applied is called The Man in the Glass. And it goes, when you get what you want and you struggle for self, and the world makes you king for a day, just go to a mirror and look at yourself and see what that man has to say. For it isn't your parents, children, or wife whose judgment upon you must pass. The fellow whose verdict counts most in your life is the one staring back from the glass. He's the fellow to please, never mind all the rest, for he's with you clear up to the end and you've passed your most dangerous, difficult test if the man in the glass is your friend. You might fool all the world down the pathway of life and get pats on the back as you pass, but your final reward will be heartaches and tears if you've cheated the man in the glass. That, that affirmation is one that I hold in high esteem because to this day I still remember it and I can say it verbatim. You know, don't cheat yourself. Don't expect something without giving something. You want a promotion? You put in the work. You do the study. You, you do the training, you volunteer, you give of yourself to make sure that you're the best man for the job. Now, I'm gonna be honest. Uh, after that Riviera Beach promotion thing, after that, I felt sorry for anybody else going up against me because I made sure that I knew what the criteria was, and I made sure that I attended all the training, did all the volunteering, and everything I could to put myself in the best position for the job. And yes, there was racism, but what I found is people want the best person for the job first. If you're even with the white guy, the white guy's gonna get it. But if you are substantially ahead of him, 
you're probably going to get that job, that promotion, because they want somebody to be successful. Now, that don't work all the time. Sometimes it's pure racism, and it's just going to be that. But I found in my career that if I apply myself to the job, research what it takes, and go out and get it, I make it very hard for the bosses not to promote me. I kind of, after you said all that, I kind of wish like, well, we'll let that, because I, I was going to ask you one more question, but um, I don't want, I don't want, I want to leave the listeners with what you just said, that affirmation and that uh, nugget of wisdom in a way um, in relation to racism. Because oftentimes, um, your perspective on it is very different from those that I hear very often. And it's, uh, it's actually refreshing to, to hear a different perspective. And here, um, so this, um, we'll come back on and uh, throughout your subsequent sessions. You know, let's just, well, I'm pretty sure uh, the listeners are eager to hear. I'm trying to maintain my timeline here, but uh, this is a very good uh, discussion. And um, you have a very unique perspective in the way of what's going on across America today, the landscape, things of that nature. So the last question I, I'll ask uh, for your follow-on session, what... Um, what would you like to discuss with the, the listeners? I, I'd like to discuss or dive a little more into focusing on the mission. And when I say mission, that's whatever the job is. Focus on it. Uh, I want to talk to them about how to focus for a specific goal. Uh, you can go out there and do something that you think works, and it might work, but it's not going to work for the specific goal that you have. Um, making sure that they get and develop some core values. They... A lot of times they don't know who they are. You 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 gotta test yourself. You've got to put yourself in positions to learn who you are and get help if you need it. Um, and I'd like to talk to them about consistency. A, a, a critical, critical need today in this, in this world. We have racism, but racism affects the guys in the middle. If you on the bottom, you, you don't have a chance if you happen to be a black man. If you in the middle, you may or may not move up. But that top 
two to three percent will always be successful and be able to get promoted all the way to chief or to the top of whatever business you're in. I'd like to talk about the consistency necessary to do that. That sounds real good, Uncle Charles. Yeah, because again, these things you're these things you're talking about. A lot of people ain't talking about them, and and to be quite honest with you, at times, I I think um, our uh, conversations and discussions on racism are are one sided, as if one sided in the sense of. You can never overcome it. You can never get through it. You can never defeat it. It's so hard. It's this monumentous hill that all these other people got to do these things for you to overcome racism. But what you just said was that granted, you're going to be affected by racism. It's gonna, it will have an effect on you. However, there are things that you can do to put yourself in a position to where you can um, lessen its effects and that's what that's what the people are calling you to hear that's what they need to know that's what they need to learn now it does it suck that racism will never go away yeah yeah it does okay roger that but how can i still be successful i don't want to just survive i want to be successful in spite of my plight of racism and how do i do that and you just yeah, you just hit the nail on the head. That's going to be a great discussion. That discussion, just like this one, might have to run over a little bit uh, past our 30-minute mark. And uh, Fernando over here, she, she tapped me. So we got to, yeah. All right. All right, Uncle Charles. So thank you for coming on here, Uncle Charles. Thank you for parting with um, with your knowledge and wisdom. And most importantly, I uh, I thank you for um, going back to revisit some of the possibly most painful and horrific memories that you have and sharing it with me and the listeners. I really, I really do, I really do appreciate it, Dr. Jones. To all, to all the listeners out there, I hope you enjoyed this session just like all the others. Um, stay safe, stay hungry, and keep learning. I'm Roy Moore, and this is What Did It Take? Mm-hmm.